Well, I don't think uh, Brother Jeremy needs much of redu uh, introduction. He surely don't need a reduction. Um, but he's been doing this quite a while, and I hope that some pastor is looking on, because there's several that are in quarantine tonight. I hope they're looking on and decide to have Brother Jeremy come and present this to the church, because I believe every church in these modernistic, contemporary days need to not only use the King James Version, but they need to know why they use the King James Bible. Amen? And I want to tell you this, um, it's been tested. I was asking uh, Landon this morning, I said, how many times have you been tested lately? He said, oh, about five. I said, glory to God, he ought to have it now. He'll, give, he'll start giving them himself, you know, that many. But I want to tell you something. Our word, the Bible, the word of God has been tested and proven and preserved. And so I'm staying by it, amen. But I love to hear this uh, teaching on why we use the King James Bible. So, Brother Jeremy, you come, uh, take your time, be finished by seven. No, uh, take your time and... And let's ask God to, to bless. You know, if I didn't crack a few jokes, I think y'all would, would just be sad. Amen. So we're going to smile a little bit on purpose. But uh, pray for Brother Jeremy as he comes and, and uh, takes the word of God and, uh, and teaches us why we believe that, that the word of God is preserved. Amen, brother. Thank you so much. Praise God. Thank you. Take your time. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm glad to be able to, uh, to do this with y'all again. And um, some of you all have heard this before. It'll just be a good review for you. Sure. Uh, some of you have not, and I hope this will be a blessing to you. My desire is just to um, give you trust as best I can and to um, embolden you and strengthen you in um, your confidence in the, that the Bible that you're using is the inspired, inerrant, preserved Word of God. Amen. There's, a, there's a lot of misconceptions on both sides of the issue, not just on those who disagree with the King James Bible, but those who claim to be King James only, there's some uh, misunderstandings. I want to give you a grounded, um, a grounded explanation of why we here at Whitfield Baptist Church use the King James Bible. Just use that here in this service and in our worship, and um, hopefully for most of y'all in our just daily devotion and daily life. And uh, as Brother Jason has mentioned, I have some Bible pages in the back. They go back to the 1200s. Um, some manuscripts that were written. I have um, a first edition King James Bible page, 1611, an actual page from a 1611 King James Bible. I have um, several of the early English translations. Um, I have some Bibles in, I mean, Bible pages in Hebrew, in Greek, in Latin. And um, feel free to take a look at those after the service. If you have any questions about them or any questions in particular, I'll be glad to answer them after the service. Also, many people have asked me, where do these Bible pages come from? Are you destroying Bibles with these? And the answer is no. Uh, many people try to restore old Bibles. It would be a, a ridiculous thing to take a perfectly good old Bible and tear it apart. But what happens is over time these Bibles decay to a point where they cannot be um, preserved, they cannot be restored. And so what they do is they remove the good pages out of it and um, people like me frame them to try to keep them from just falling apart and falling away and decaying. So um, I have some in the back, not in the auditorium, but in the back um, for sale. Some people have been interested in having one hanging up in their house, some old Bible pages. If you're interested in that, please see my wife, and um, she can show you those Bible pages. If you're interested in having one, you're welcome to purchase one after the service. So we'll go ahead and begin. Um, the, the lesson is called The Preservation of the Word of God and the English Bible. 
And as we study um, history, we see from the Garden of Eden all the way to now, Satan has been attacking God's Word. You know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, um, he denies that what God was doing was true. He said, "What did what um, eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Um, Eve said that we cannot touch it, neither can we uh, look at it, or we're going to eat of it, neither can we touch it, or we shall surely die. And Satan said, that's not what God said. And you know what? Ever since then, he has been attacking the Word of God. This is not something that was just in the Bible. Throughout history, after the Bible was written, many different people, many different religions, take the time to attack God's Word, the Bible that we use. We look in the, um, the religion of Islam, that false religion, and here's what Islam teaches concerning the Bible. A man by the name of Abdullah Ibn Abbas said um, about a thousand years ago, he said, why do you ask the people of the Scripture anything, about anything while your book, the Quran, which has been revealed to Allah's apostle, is newer and the latest. Now think about that. That was a thousand years ago, just about. And do you hear what it says? Why are you asking people about the Bible? What we have, the Quran, is newer and the latest. Notice what it says here. You read it pure, talking about the Quran. You read it pure, undistorted, and unchanged, and Allah has told you that the people of the Scripture, meaning the Jews and Christians, changed their Scripture and distorted it, and wrote the Scripture with their own hands and said, it is from Allah to sell it for a little gain. Now, first off, let me tell you, if you study the history of the Koran, I want you to know it's not what the Prophet Muhammad necessarily said. If you really study it, they do not have a pure um, Koran even today. But they will attack the Bible and say that it has been distorted and corrupted. See, it goes back even a thousand years. It's nothing new. Let's go into the, 19, um, the 19th century, the 1800s. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, said this about the Bible. He said, I believe the Bible as it read when it came from the pen of the original writers. Ignorant translators, careless transcribers, or designing and corrupt priests have committed many errors. And the Mormons will tag on this line. You ask them about it, they say, well, I believe the Bible... As it, was, as it is, they say, correctly translated. They believe that the Bible has been corrupted and the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith and the Mormon church, actually I don't even like to call it that, the Mormons are bringing about a restoration of the Scriptures and a restoration of the church. But it isn't even just a hundred years ago. Just even in the past decade, we see attacks on the Bible. Here's the, uh, the front cover of Newsweek magazine on January 2nd. 2015. It shows a picture of an open 1611 King James Bible, and it says the Bible, so misunderstood, it's a sin. Now that statement right there, I would agree for 99% of the people in the world today. It is a very misunderstood book when people talk about the Bible. Most of the time when I hear people talk about the Bible, they do not have a clue what they're talking about. And by the way, if you're getting your information on the Bible from places like YouTube, you're an idiot. I promise you, um, I would like to say 99% of the people talking about the Bible on YouTube have no clue what the Bible is all about. But that's not what this person's talking about. The person who um, was the editor of this article in Newsweek was a man by the name of Kurt Eichenwald. And here's what he's saying. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. 
I would probably say yes to most of them. <laughs> neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. What he says is, the way we have our Bible today is just like that game we used to play in school. Anybody ever played the grapevine game? Where you all stood in a circle or in a line, somebody would whisper something into somebody's ear, that person would whisper the same thing into somebody else's ear, and it would go down the line or go around to the circle till it finally got back to the first person that said it. And whatever that person said, it wasn't the same thing as what was first said. Are we right? And we all laugh at how different it's changed. They assume that that grapevine game with careless people handling just spoken words like that would be the exact same way the Bible was copied. That's ridiculous. I'm going to give you confidence that that is not the way this has happened. He goes on to say in his article that the Bible is a human book. The Bible is a human book. It's a natural book. It undergoes the rules and the changes of all books over time. I heard this exact same argument when I went to Bible college many, many years ago in Chattanooga, Tennessee. They made the same argument to me in my theology class. It disturbed me at that time. After a while though, after hearing the arguments over and over again, I would agree with them. The Bible was a natural book. I had to learn the difference. I had to have had my mind changed. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Is the Bible a human book or is it a divinely inspired book? Can I put it another way? Is it a natural book or is it a supernatural book? Let's see what the Bible says about itself. Let me give you some reasons why the Bible is a supernaturally, divinely inspired book. Number one, the Bible had many authors, but it is all... God's Word. Where do I see that? The Bible says in the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So do you realize that every word in this Bible proceeds from where? The mouth of God. That's why we call the Bible God's Word. It's not man's ideas. It's not man's thoughts like some people say. This is God's Word. And whatever God says trumps everybody else's Word. The Bible is a supernatural book. No other book can honestly claim to proceed from the mouth of God. Not only um, is the Bible had many authors, but it is all God's Word. But here's something you may not realize. Of the many biblical persons who wrote down God's Word, one of them was God Himself. There's no other book in the world that can claim that. Did you know that part of the Bible was written by God Himself? Some of you are saying, I don't remember Him. I remember, I remember Moses and I remember Isaiah and Jeremiah, but no one ever says God. Well, let me show you in the Bible where it says that. We see it in the book of Exodus, chapter 24 and verse 12. The Bible says... And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments. What's the next phrase? Which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. I personally believe that the very first thing ever wrote in the Bible, 
The first thing that was ever written down was the Ten Commandments. If you disagree with me, you can talk to me about it after class. You're wrong. But I believe on Mount Sinai, this was the first part of the Bible that was ever written down. And who is the one that wrote it down first? God. Do you realize when Moses wrote it in the Bible, he was merely copying what God already wrote? Now, no other book can claim to actually have the writing of God Himself in it. Not just His words, but His actual writing. Isn't that incredible? This is an unusual book. One more thing. Not only did the Bible have many authors, but it's all God's Word. Not only have the many biblical persons who wrote down God's Word, one of them was God Himself, but also the Bible tells us itself that it is a supernatural book. We see this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is quick, that word means alive, Amen. and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Do you realize that every other book is so keyed into its own time that it dies whenever the author's finished with it? We look at Mark Twain. My favorite book that I read when I was a kid was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Love that story. What was the story about? A kid going down a raft with a runaway sleigh. And they had many adventures on their way. Can you see that today anymore? On the Mississippi River, you're going to run into a raft with a kid and a runaway slave on it? Well, the United States is going. We may see some runaway slaves pretty soon. But we don't see that anymore. That book died. The story of it is no longer relatable to us today. It may have a good message, but the Bible is still alive. It's still impacting hearts. It's still changing people. It's still giving life through its teachings into many people's, um, into the hearts of the believer. It is a supernatural book. Well, let's go a little bit further. Another important question to ask is this. What is the Word of God? Is it the Scriptures in the original tongues, in other words, the Greek and the Hebrew? Or is it a faithful translation? Many people say you can't know the Bible unless you learn Greek and Hebrew. Well, that's a ridiculous thing to ask of people, to learn Greek and Hebrew to know God's Word. So is the Bible, just as the inspired Word of God, the Scriptures in the original tongues, or is it a faithful translation? And the answer is both. The answer is both. Can I show you how we know that? Can I show you from the Scriptures how you can see that? I want you all to do me a favor. I want you to take out your Bibles. I want you to take them out right now. If we're going to a conference on the Bible, I hope you have a Bible with you. Take out your Bible, and I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. No, I'm not going to look in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. I want you all to. I'm going to be looking in Luke 4, Verses 18 and 19. But y'all are going to look in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. In the book of Luke, Jesus is in Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue. They ask Him to read. He stands up and He opens the Old Testament. He opens it up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to show you what Luke says Jesus read. And as I'm reading that, I want you to read along in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. So do you got that? You're in Isaiah. I'm in Luke. Let's look at our Bibles. Here we go. Luke 4, 18 and 19 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are, that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now i got a question for you. Is what I read, word for word, exactly what you saw in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2? But that's what Jesus read. Why is there a difference? Is it because like Joseph Smith and the Muslims say, the Bible's corrupt? No. That's not the reason for it. Here's the reason why there's a difference between the two. The reason is this. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is an English translation from the original Hebrew. Okay? The book of Luke is an English translation of that passage in Isaiah in Greek. Luke 4, 18 and 19 is a Greek translation of that passage being translated into English. Do you see what I'm saying? Now my question to you is this. Which one of these is the Word of God? Which one of these is inspired? Which one of these is authoritative? Which one of these is correct? What's the answer? Both. So do you understand? There may be differences because of the way we speak. We don't speak the same way as the Hebrews do. We don't put our sentences together the same way the Hebrews do. We have phrases that make no sense to a Hebrew speaker, and the Hebrews have phrases that would make no sense to us. For example, when Moses would get angry in the Old Testament, many times they would write his anger in this phrase, his nose got red. Because notice when you get angry, what happens? Your face turns red. A lot of times your nose gets red. It's a Hebrew expression for anger. We don't use that. It would sound weird. No, Moses' nose got red. Sounds strange to us, wouldn't it? Just like here in the South, we have phrases that make no sense to Yankees. Am I correct, Brother Gabe? Am I correct, Brother Gary? <laughs> Y'all all nod your head with that. I know. We're weird sometimes in the way we talk. And we both speak English. So I want you to understand a translation okay, that's faithful to the original languages can be considered authoritative and inspired, and you can have confidence in it if it's a faithful translation. And I've shown that from you, not from my own opinion, but I've shown it to you from the Scriptures itself. Okay, I hope that's a help to you. Let's keep on going. we got a lot of stuff to go through today. There's a man who's considered by many circles in academia the foremost expert on the Greek New Testament. His name's Bart Ehrman. And this expert on the Greek Bible is not a Christian. In fact, he's an atheist. He may call himself an agnostic, but I believe he considers himself an atheist. He does not believe there's a God. How did he come to that conclusion? I want you to listen to this man. You know what? He grew up in a what we would consider at least a conservative Christian church, um, home. He went to a conservative Christian church Hey, he ended up going for a time to Moody Bible Institute. I know there's some people in this room that went to Moody Bible Institute. And there's still some good people that come out of Moody. I'm not knocking Moody at all, okay? Many people I listen to on the radio out of Moody Bible Institute. There's some good people that come out of there. He came out, though, but he no longer believes in God. And here's what he said about that. This is him on inspiration and preservation. Listen to what he says. He says, if God wanted His people to have His words... Surely He would have given them 
to them. Wouldn't you agree? Okay. The fact that we don't have the words must surely show, I reason, that He did not preserve them for us. And if He didn't perform that miracle, the miracle of preservation, making sure we have the words that He had said or wrote, if He didn't perform that miracle, there seemed to be no reason to think that He performed the earlier miracle of inspiring those words. So you see, even though he's an unbeliever, he's come to the conclusion that the Bible has become corrupted, and because of that, it couldn't be God's Word. Why? Because he correctly links preservation with inspiration. They go hand in hand. And if one does not believe that the Bible is preserved, you must come to the conclusion that the Bible is not inspired. Let me explain that to you a little bit better. The dean... um, I'm going to skip this for a second. Let me go to the Dean Burgon Society. I'll go back to that statement, okay? The importance of both inspiration and preservation. Um, The Dean Burgon Society said this, Bible inspiration and Bible preservation are supremely important. The undermining or destroying of either doctrine renders the other meaningless. If the Bible is not verbally, plenarily, and inerrantly inspired. The word verbally means all the words are inspired. I mean, the words are inspired. Plenarily means all of it. Okay, the word plenary means all. So all the words are inspired. Notice it says inerrantly inspired and without error. Then, and if the inspiration does not extend to all matters which the Bible speaks, it does not matter if the Bible's been preserved. So in other words, if the Bible hadn't been inspired in the first place, why do we care if it's preserved? Do you agree with that? If every word of God is inspired, okay, if they weren't inspired, then why do we care if it's preserved? Let's go to the next statement now. It also follows, if the Bible has not been preserved, it does not matter how it was inspired. If it's been corrupted and changed over the thousands of years since the Bible was written, then what does it matter if God had originally written it down? You see, inspiration and preservation go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. So let me explain something to you. I believe this, and I hope to show you that this is the case. If God has inspired verbally, plenarily, and inerrantly the Word of God, in other words, all the words are inerrant and inspired, then I believe, that all the words must be preserved. They must be preserved. Every word that God inspires, He preserves. That's a good motto to go by. Wouldn't you agree with the Bible? Think about it for a second. Every word that God inspires, He preserves. And if you don't agree with that statement, then I have a question for you. Which inspired Word of God is okay to lose? Which verse do we don't need? So it makes perfect sense, wouldn't you agree? Every Word of God that He inspires, He preserves. Simply put. And this isn't something new. Many times the King James-only people are accused of um, just coming up with a new idea. There's some kind of cult. I do believe there's some... Very, very dangerous ideas out of the King James Only movement in some places. I'm not part of all and agree with all the King James Only people. But I want to say my stand on preservation is nothing new. It goes back 
through the history of the church. Let me show you the Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. Okay? In other words, that's a long time ago. That's even older than Brother Lamar. The Baptist Confession of Faith, they answer the question, what is preservation? And here's what they say. Listen to this. 1689, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, now notice the next statement, by His singular care and providence. Stop right there for a minute. What does it mean when it says His singular care? Who's the one that does the preservation? Who? God. Is it man? I'm going to answer that out of the Bible in just a minute. It's God, correct? Notice this statement. By His singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages. Pure in all ages. Uncorrupted. Now notice why that's important. The next statement. The words then are therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of the religion the church is finally to appeal to them. In other words, that's the final appeal. It doesn't matter. If I get up and preach something and Brother Wayne gets up and preaches something, it doesn't matter what our opinion is. If we go to the Bible, and whosoever side it's on, the argument's over. Wouldn't you agree? Hey, if me and Brother Wayne preach two different things, and we get up and the Bible says something totally different from both of us, who do we go with? The Bible. My Sunday school teacher one time said he was in front of a pastor and he said, I don't care what the Bible says, it's what I say. That's flat out wrong. What is our final appeal? What is our final authority? Hey, and there's been many times as a preacher, I got up and I preached something I thought was good and somebody showed me I was wrong in the Bible. And you know what I had to do? I had to eat crow and say he's right. Swallow my pride. Because guess what? It's not my authority. It's God's authority. So this is not something new. This idea that God has kept His Word pure throughout all ages. Now let me show you from the Bible how this is the case. Who is responsible for preserving the Bible? Is it God or man? Because people today will say, hey, I believe the Bible is 98% preserved. We have 98% of it still. That's not good enough for me. If it's God, 98% ain't good enough. Man, that's great. But if it's God, 98% doesn't cut it. Wouldn't you agree? Who's responsible for it? Hey, how many of y'all would love to have a salvation that only is 98% effective? Hey, God says, I promise to send 98% of you to heaven if you believe in me. Leave you scared at night, wouldn't it? <laughs> hey, it's only 2%. Hey, we'll just leave that one out and we'll just keep the 90 and 9. How about that? It's not how it works. So who's responsible for it? Let's see it from the Bible. Moving very quickly, hopefully. I'm going to show you a bunch of Scripture. I want you to pay attention to the underlying portions. Here's Jesus' statement, okay? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So which one's going to last longer? The word of God or heaven and earth? Let's go further, okay? Isaiah 48. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. But the word of our God shall stand for how long? What? Forever. Very good. Matthew 5.18 For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot 
or one tittle. That's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet and the smallest um, grammatical mark also in the Hebrew alphabet. Not one jot nor one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now some people would argue, well, it was just until the law was fulfilled is what they're talking about there. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. There may have been changes after Jesus then. Well, here's the thing. Most Bible scholars argue that the Old Testament had already been corrupted before Jesus was even alive. Jesus apparently believed that every word, every letter of God's Word, every little mark in the Bible had been preserved. That's what He says, correct? I'm using His own words. Jesus believed in His day that He had a perfectly preserved Word of God. He believed that. And how long did He say His words would last? Longer than heaven and earth. Well, just keep that in mind when you hear other people talking about losing things. You're going against even what Jesus thought. Are you a better authority than Jesus on the Bible? It's His Word. Let's keep going. Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth. So this ain't talking about the Mosaic law. This is talking about what Isaiah is speaking. His prophecy was written down in the book of Isaiah. He says, My words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord from henceforth and for how long? Forever. Keep in mind, what are we saying? Forever a lot, correct? Let's keep going. Just keep that word in mind. Psalm 119, verses 160. Verse 160. By the way, just a little pet peeve, the book of Psalms does not have chapters. It has Psalms. It's not Psalms 119. It's Psalm 119. That's a little pet peeve. I know. Get it. Okay. Let's keep going. Psalm 119, 160. Thy word is true from the beginning. Understand that songs and poetry in Hebrew is different than poetry in English. Poetry in English rhymes, correct? Poetry in Hebrew does not. What it does is it either compares each other, it repeats a phrase, or it contrasts a phrase. So notice this phrase. Thy word is true from the beginning. So going back this way, God's word's always been true. Do you understand that? Now they're going to contrast it in order to make it a poem. What does it say? And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth for how long? So going this way, His word is true, correct? Going this way, His word is what? True. Very good. I love poetry in Hebrew. Here we go. Psalm 12, 6-7. through seven. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, people who disagree with the stand that God has preserved His Word will argue that that phrase right there, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever, is not talking about the Word of God. They say it's talking about Israel. Because in the book, it it talks about Israel and it talks about the heathen of the world. But also, in that same thing, it's comparing another thing. It's comparing the lying lips of the heathen to the Word of God. He says the lying lips are going to fall. They're going to be cut off. But it says here the words of the Lord are not lies. They're what? Pure words. And they're not going to be cut off 
What is God going to do with them? He's not going to cut them off. He's going to preserve them. This is not talking about the Israel. It is talking about the Word of God. And how long is He going to preserve them? Forever. And another thing too, how many generations are going to get it? Every generation. Not just in the 20th century, not just in the 18th century, not just in the 10th century, but every generation, whether they go after it and seek it out or not, will have the Word of God. Keep on going. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed, what is revealed? What is the revealed stuff? The Bible. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children for how long? Forever. And just in case you don't believe that what I'm talking about is the Word of God, what does it say? That we may do all of what? Word of God, the Word of this law. So what's the answer? Let me go back right here. What's the answer? Why do I keep pointing out forever? Because that word forever lies in the realm of only one being. And that's God. Can man keep something going on forever? Name one building that has stood without crumbling or decay forever. Look at the pyramids. How old are the pyramids? 3,000, 4,000 years old, somewhere between there, right? Maybe even a little bit older, I'm not sure. Are they perfectly preserved? Have they ever crumbled or lost a stone or a brick or a casement? Yeah, they've fallen apart. They have to still do work on them to keep them from crumbling. Things that man do cannot last. But whatever God does can last forever. And here's the thing. The phrase forever, 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 when it comes to the Word of God, is in the realm of God's work alone. Man cannot do that. Man cannot keep something to make something last longer than heaven and earth. There's only one person who can do it. And who is that? God. And if you don't believe that, then answer how they can do this. It says those things that are revealed belong to, unto us and to our children forever. For what purpose? That we may do all the words of this law. How can they do all the words of this law unless they have all the words of this law? It's common sense, correct? So even that statement speaks to preservation. I already used this verse, but I want to show it to you again. You see Matthew 24, 35, I've already read that to you, Mark 13, 31, and Luke 21, 33. Read the exact same word for word in all three Gospels. It's the only verse that is just alike, word for word, in all three of our Gospels. Not in John, of course, but John was writing for a different purpose. Okay, It's a different Gospel than the other two, three. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is the only verse that is word for word the same. And what does it say? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, the use of words here shows that God preserves not just the thought, but every one of His words. You know, if He just said, my word shall not pass away, somebody could have said, well, what He means there is just His message. But He didn't say word, singular. He said words, plural. What does that speak to? God will preserve 
all His words. Now, I've shown that to you from the Scriptures. Um, I'll give you a couple more verses very quickly. 1 Peter 1, 23-25, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God. So what does the Bible say about itself? It is what? Corruptible or incorruptible? Hey, is 99% incorruptible incorruptible? No. 100%, correct? That's what it's got to be. Let's keep going. Which liveth and abideth forever. Then he quotes the book of Isaiah. We've already read this. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. In the book of Isaiah, they translated it stands forever. Here, when they did the Greek translation, I find it interesting, it uses not only the word stand, but it says endureth forever. It's lasting. It resists any kind of corruption. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. So if you've heard the gospel and you've accepted Jesus Christ, it's because the message of the gospel has come to you uncorrupted. Amen. It's because of the preservation of the word of God that you sit in church today as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. I'm Amen. thankful that God preserves His word. Amen. Not 90%, not 98%, not even 99%, of 100%. I like this one too. The Great Commission. Do you know that the Great Commission teaches preservation? Let me show you how I see this. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. By the way, this is not a knock on anybody. Some of y'all are going to say you're attacking a group. I am not attacking a group. Okay, but many people enjoy using modern translations to use this phrase. Go ye therefore and make disciples. A Christian cannot make disciples. There's only one person who can. And who is that? Jesus Christ. And the Greek in the Texas Receptus does not bear out that translation. It says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Notice that phrase I have underlined. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. How does that teach preservation? Simply put, how can we today teach everything Jesus commanded unless we have everything that Jesus commanded? You see, even the Great Commission teaches preservation. And how much of it? All of it. Now, since we've gone that far, I want to tell you why I am not King James only. I figure it's good to get this out of the way. Why I am not King James only. Don't get up and walk out yet. I want you to hear me all the way through. Why I am not King James only. Number one, I am not King James only because the King James translators were inspired. You hear this a lot in many circles. Um, they're known as Ruckmanites today. They teach something called secondary inspiration. Probably the biggest proponent of it today that I know of is a man by the name of Sam Gipp. I'm not knocking him, not Sam Gibb, but Sam Gipp, Dr. Gipp. And um, I'm not knocking him, I'm not questioning his salvation. But I disagree with him, and I'm going to very easily show you why that's wrong. Do we believe that God preserves His Word? He preserves it in every generation, correct? So why does He have to re-inspire the Bible when it comes to the King James translation? 
Understand this, if he had to re-inspire it, what does that mean? It means that God did not preserve it in the first place. So it had to be re-inspired. Now, the reason why this argument's made is many people get afraid when somebody starts bringing up the Greek to them. They don't know Greek many times, and somebody says, well, the Greek says something else. And they get scared all of a sudden, and they say, well, if there's a difference there, then is the King James wrong then? Look, I want you to understand something. The King James is the greatest English translation of the Bible. The English translation of the Bible. It is the supreme English translation. I don't believe there's ever been one better. Okay? But I'm not going to give the King James translators more credit than they deserve. They are not like Peter and Paul. They're not like John and Isaiah or Jeremiah. They were not inspired. Inspiration is a one-time event. Inspiration ends when that book is finished. After John wrote the last word of the book of Revelation, immediately preservation started up. When Mark finished off his gospel, he wrote the last word of his gospel. Preservation starts. Inspiration ends. Preservation begins. Okay? And the reason why I don't believe in secondary inspiration is because if I held to that, then what I'm saying is God did not preserve His Word. That can't be the case. So let me go to the next statement. I am not, um, I am not King James only because the King James is superior or corrects the Greek New Testament. It does not correct or is superior to the Greek New Testament. Why? Because it's a translation of that. And by definition, a translation can at best only be equal to to the thing it's translating. Does that make sense to you? Cannot be better. You can't translate something better than what God inspired. Do you understand that? By definition, a translation at best can only be equal to the thing it's translating. It can never be superior. It can never be better. So, I'm not King James only because the King James Version is superior or corrects the Greek New Testament. And I notice I have KJV there. I want to make sure you understand something. I like to use the phrase King James Bible because it comes from a different period of time. You have the Great Bible, the uh, Matthew's Bible, the Geneva Bible of 1560, the Bishop's Bible of 1568, and you have the King James Bible of 1611. That's what they called them all. Versions are something new. The old name for it is Bible. So don't be afraid to use that phrase, okay? It's not trying to, it's not even knocking the modern ones necessarily. It's just what they used for it back then. That's what they called it. And let me give you the last one. Why am I not King James only? Because the King James Bible is the only translation in the world to have the perfectly preserved Word of God. I don't believe that either. I don't even believe that the King James Bible should be translated for other countries and other languages. France has a French Bible translated from the original languages that they need to be using, not trying to translate the Bible, the King James, into French. French. Hey, I believe every people, every tongue, including those that Mark and Brother Jeremy and Brother uh, Kevin work with down in South Africa, the Kosa language, the Kosa speaking people. I don't believe they need to have a Bible translated from the King James. I believe they should have a Bible that's translated from the original Greek and Hebrew, the correct Greek and Hebrew text. Why? Because that's what God inspired. That's what God gave to us. And they don't need a translation of a translation. They need a translation from the original. 
The King James Bible is the Bible for English-speaking people only. It's not the Bible for Spain. It's not the Bible for Mexico. It's not the Bible for the Kosa people. It's not the Bible for the Chinese. It's the Bible for English-speaking people. Now, let me tell you why I am King James only. I am King James only because the King James Version is the last English translation to come solely from the correct Hebrew or Masoretic text and Greek Hebrew, I mean, the Byzantine majority text. It's the last one to come solely from that. Some of you may say, well, what about the new King James? We'll talk about that later, okay? But it does not come purely from these two texts. Somebody was arguing with me about it. Saying, why don't you just go with these modern versions? I said, well, let me explain this to you. All these people are interested in making money. That's what these new versions are about many times. They're making money. Why is it that nobody has ever just said, I'm going to just translate it from the text receptus and from the, the Masoretic text. I'm just going to make a translation just from that. And in the argument, but do you realize since 1611, unless it was a private translation or somebody making a translation down in their basement, there's never been any major translation since 1611. That's over 400 years from the text the King James Bible was translated from from the text that the Bishop's Bible was translated from, from the text that the Geneva Bible was translated from. Hasn't been another one made. 400 years. We'll talk about that later as well. And finally, I'm King James only because it is the last English translation to uphold the doctrine of preservation. The critical text argues that something's been lost. You know why? Because if you study the critical edition, I mean the critical text, you'll see they're in there. 5th edition, some of them their 30th edition, their 33rd edition. They're constantly coming up with new editions. Not new translations, but new editions of what they say is the original Bible. Why? Because they don't believe it's been preserved. They're still trying to figure out what it is. This is the last translation to uphold the doctrine of preservation. Now, I don't have much time. I want to try to do this in 15 minutes. But I want to show you very quickly, how God preserved His Word in the Old Testament. I want you to understand something. I can't go through the New Testament and show you how God preserved His Word. Because the New Testament had the longest time frame for its writing, okay? Only took 50 years. 50 or 60 years. From Matthew or Mark, if you believe Mark's the first one, from Mark to Revelation, 50 or 60 years. The whole New Testament's completed. But the Old Testament, the Old Testament now, it took over a thousand years to complete. So over a thousand years, there comes up an opportunity for some of that Bible to get lost. Let's see what the Bible itself has to say about how God preserved His Word. So if you've got your pens ready, be ready to look at it. How does God preserve His Word? I want to show you this in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 through 26. Listen to what it says. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of the writing the words of this law in a book. What is he talking about? The book of Deuteronomy. He's finishing off the law of God. Until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. Now what does it mean to put it in the side of the ark of the covenant? Does that mean that the Aaron's rod that budded, the Ten Commandments, and a pot of manna, there was also the Word of God inside the ark? No. 
The phrase in the side of the ark simply means put it beside the ark. So I want you to understand, everywhere that the ark of the covenant goes, what goes with it? The Word of God. You see what I'm saying? Now, in Moses' day, what was the Word of God? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When Moses died, that's the Bible right there. Okay? If you want to argue Job was there, we'll talk later, okay? I'm not a liberal who says Job was written like right before Jesus was alive, but it wasn't written at Moses' day, okay? We can talk about it later if you want to talk about it. But those five books, they are stuck with the ark. Everywhere the ark goes, what goes with it? The Bible. Now what about the rest of the Bible? Well, we see this in the book of Joshua. Notice what Joshua says in Joshua 24, 26. Listen to this. It says, and Joshua wrote these words, where? In the book of the law of what? God. Now what is the law of God? What is considered the law in the Old Testament? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So was there already their Old Testament, their Bible, what did, uh, what did Joshua do? He wrote the words where? In the book of the law of God. What does that mean? It was a scroll back then, not a book. So what did they do with the scroll? When they got to the end of that scroll, they sewed on a new page. And what was that? Joshua. Notice what it says. And Joshua took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Now it says that he wrote the words where? In the book of the law, right? The law of God. i got a question for you. Where was the book of the law always placed? Where? Beside the Ark of the Covenant. Hey, where did the Ark of the Covenant reside? In the tabernacle. Where in the tabernacle? The Holy of Holies. How many people could go into the Holy of Holies? One. How many times could he go in there? Once a year. So in the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant and what's sitting right beside it? The Word of God. Now that's important. I want you all to keep that in mind. Very important as we go through the Bible. Now, how seriously did they take the, uh, we've already talked about this, but how seriously did they take the Ark of the Covenant? How serious did God take it? He took it very seriously, correct? And um, I want you to understand, by placing the Word of God in the side of the Ark of the Covenant, it was under the care and protection of who? God Himself and not men. Let me give you an example of how, what God did about the people who mishandled the Ark. Um, we'll talk about that this verse right here in just a minute, but do you remember in the book of uh, Judges, when the cho- I mean, in the book of 1 Samuel, when the children of Israel, um, the ark was brought back by the Philippines, I mean the Philistines, not the Philippines, the Philistines, they brought it in to a town of Beth Shemesh, it was a Levitical town, and the Levites see the ark on a wagon being brought in, they go over to it and they said, hey, you know what, I've always heard what was in here, they say that Moses' raw that budded in that ark, Hey, they said that the pot of manna was in that ark. Hey, they said the Ten Commandments were in that ark. I've never seen those tables of stone that Moses brought down off Mount Sinai. Let's take a look and see it for ourselves. And you know what? They decided they were going to try to open it up and see what was in it. And what did the Bible say God did? He slew over 25,000 of the people standing around for mishandling his ark. Another day, in the book of 2 Samuel, David wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. So what does he do? 
Hey, he puts on a big celebration. He has musicians playing music before it. They put it on a wagon, even though it's not supposed to be carried on a wagon. They put it on the same thing that the Philistines put it on. Supposed to be carried by the Levites, but they put it on a cart. And as it's going down the road, the road's a little bit wobbly. I mean, the cart starts to rock a little bit. They think it's going to fall over. And a well-meaning person named Uzzah puts his hand up to keep the ark from falling down. Now, what's wrong with that? The problem is God said, don't touch it. And he touched it. What did God do to him? He killed him. Now, God took the Ark of the Covenant seriously, right? What's right beside it? The Word of God. How seriously do you think God took the Word of God? Very seriously. Let's see how this pays off. Again, where is the Ark of the Covenant? If you wanted to find it, 3,000 years ago in Israel, where did you go to see where the Ark of the Covenant was? Where was it? It was in, well, a thousand years ago, it was in the tabernacle. They just hadn't built the temple yet. But it was in the Holy of Holies, correct? And if the Ark of the Covenant's in the Holy of Holies, where can you find the Word of God? The Holy of Holies. Okay? Keep that in mind as we read this. 2 Kings 22, verse 8. The Bible says, And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, they were doing renovation during that time. And this is during the time of Josiah. His dad was a wicked man. His dad was Manasseh, an evil king. And at that time, they were not using the temple for good purposes. The temple was falling apart. So Josiah decided he was going to try to fix the, uh, the temple, restore it. So they're doing work. They're clearing away rubbish. They're clearing away trash. They're fixing the walls to keep them standing and firm. And the guy that was working on it said this. He said, I found the book of the law where? In the house of the Lord. Now, in the tabernacle and in the temple, they never record a place where they kept the law except for one place. And where was that one place? In the Holy of Holies. Because it sat beside what? The Ark of the Covenant. Now listen to what he said. They had lost it. They had lost the Word of God. They said then that Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. Now, I want you to understand something. The fact that the book of the law was preserved by God Himself and not man paid off for all mankind in 2 Kings 22.11. 1-11. During the reign of Manasseh, they had lost the Word of God. It had fallen by the wayside. Nobody even had a clue what it said. They were worshiping Jehovah, but not the way Jehovah wanted to be worshipped. They had no clue how to do it. Why? They had lost the book of the law. But you see, God had not left it up to man to keep it. It had always sat where it's supposed to be, beside the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And in this passage, we found out that though man had lost it, God had kept it for all mankind. As they were repairing, as I said, um, the temple during King Josiah's reign, they found the lost book of the law. The only place in the temple that the Bible says the Word of God was placed was in the Holy of Holies, beside the Ark of the Covenant and it paid off for mankind. The only reason they were able to find God's Word and why we still have it is not due to man, 
but due to God. Amen? Amen. Well, let's go further. Is there any other places in the Bible that talk about the preservation of God? Yes, there is. The preservation of God's Word. It can be found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 36, verse number 10. Now, Jeremiah was writing a lot of prophecies nobody liked. People hated Jeremiah's prophecies. In fact, during the time that Nebuchadnezzar was conquering Israel, Jeremiah was preaching and prophesying, telling the people of Israel not to fight, but just give up. Surrender to them. God has given the nation of Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, today, if there was a preacher like that, they would have called him unpatriotic. And they wouldn't like it. You know, the last city to fall, major city of Judah to fall before Jerusalem um, to Nebuchadnezzar, was the city of Lachish. And they've actually done archaeological digs around Lachish, and they found some pottery shards that people would write on. Paper was expensive. Pottery was everywhere. When a pot broke, they had broken pieces of pottery. And they would use that like little post-it notes and to pass letters. You just write your message on that shard and pass it on. Some of those exist today. And in Lachish, they found le um, shards, letters written by soldiers, probably on the wall of Lachish, talking about a troublesome prophet preaching in Jerusalem. Interesting. I wonder if that was Jeremiah they were talking about. Jeremiah was telling them to surrender. Well, God said, I want you to take what I wrote. This is Jeremiah 1 through 35. And I want you to give it to the people of Israel. Let the king read it. Look what happens when that happens. Jeremiah 36, 10. Then read Baruch. You know, here's a great question. Who wrote the book of Jeremiah? Who wrote it? Wasn't Jeremiah. It was Baruch. Did you know that? Baruch wrote it down. Jeremiah was the one that received the prophecy. Baruch was a scribe. Just a little funny bit of trivia there. Then read Baruch in the book of the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan the scribe, in the higher court, at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house, in the ears of all the people. We go forward. Jeremiah 36, 23. He reads it first in all the people, and finally it makes it to the king. Notice this. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, Jehudi did this. He cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. So there's Jeremiah 1 through 35. What did Jehudi do? He would read three or four leaves, three or four pages of the scroll. And when he was done reading it, he took out his knife, cut them up, threw them in the fire. Three or four more leaves, got sick of what he was hearing, cut them up, threw them in the fire. He did that from Jeremiah chapter 1 all the way to Jeremiah chapter 35 and burned every page. Now that's the original manuscripts. How many times do we hear about the original manuscripts? Hey, you can only trust that it's the perfectly preserved Word of God in the original manuscripts. They say, I believe in the inspired Word of God as it is in the original manuscripts. Well, here's the original manuscripts burning in the fireplace. What do we do? We've lost the Word of God, right? No. Let's see what the Bible says. Now listen to this. After that was done, in verse 27 of chapter 36, the Bible says, Then the Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the roll, and the word which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah. See who wrote the book of Jeremiah? Baruch. You thought I was joking, didn't you? Say, take thee again another roll, 
and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned. And then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe. Why? Because Baruch the scribe is writing down the book of Jeremiah. The son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. So God said after it was burned to do what? Write them all again. So i got a question for you. Did Jeremiah just memorize Jeremiah 1 through 35? I mean, that would be something to memorize all that. Wouldn't you agree? Jeremiah 1 through 35. I remember having to memorize books. Not the books of the Bible. When I was a junior, I had to memorize books of the Bible. We had to memorize 1 Timothy. We had to memorize Philippians. We had to memorize 2 and 3 John. Those were easy. had to memorize Jude. That was easy. 1 John. But none of those were 35 chapters long. I doubt I could quote 35 chapters worth of verses even now after all these years. Did he have them all memorized? No. Let me show you how he did it. John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26 explained this to us. It says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. This is Jesus speaking. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and notice the next statement, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Amen. So how was Jeremiah to write all those words? The Holy Ghost. The God that's doing the inspiring, not the guy the person who's doing the inspiring showed him the words again so he could write them down. Now here's the thing. It said that he wrote all the words down. He wrote them word for word, okay? But notice it also says then Jeremiah wrote the rest of the book that bears his name. Remember it said there were added unto them many like words? What are those many like words? Verses thir chapter 36. Thank you, Brother Andrew. Chapters 36 to the end of Jeremiah. God said, you're not losing one of them. The king cut up the original manuscripts, threw them in the fire. God wasn't worried about it. Hey, the original manuscripts are gone? No big deal. That's not what it's about. God is doing the preserving. And God ensured that the Bible stayed the way it needed to be. So what have we learned? Number one, the Bible is a divinely inspired or supernatural book. It is not a human book. It is not a natural book. Number two, Inspiration and preservation of the Word of God, both of them, is important and necessary. Let me give you that phrase again. Every word that God inspired, He preserves. Every word that God inspired, He preserves. And finally, Old Testament history gives us examples showing that God has preserved every word He has inspired. Isn't that a blessing? I hope this has given you some confidence. This is just the first part. Next week, we're going to go through the New Testament. and We're going to look through history to show us how God preserved the New Testament from the time that the Bible was completed all the way to our day, to the King James Bible. And I hope that will be a blessing to you. I hope you'll be back next week.